could you turn back in your Bible to uh, Psalm 46? Psalm 46. And before I comment on these words, let me pray for us. Um, Let's bow our heads and our hearts together as we pray. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. O Lord our God, we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have given us your word. Please open our eyes now that we might see the radiance of your goodness and glory. Please bring joy to our hearts, we pray. Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom so that we might be able to walk the journey of this life with greater skill and effectiveness. And we pray, please, that you would revive our souls. Father, make us more alive, more attentive, more aware of your activity around us. So, Father, we want to just pray now, please, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I wonder if you were aware that actually during World War I, every soldier who was sent off to war uh, was sent off with these things in their standard issue kit. They were issued with a uniform, issued with a helmet, uh, they were issued with boots and a backpack containing uh, food rations. Uh, They were issued with a gun and ammunition and everyone, without exception, was issued with a Bible, with a Bible. Um, I think, and by today's terms, I think that's a little surprising, to be honest, but the senior military command Uh, as they sent these young men off to war, viewed it as absolutely essential that these these soldiers would have the encouragement that comes from the scriptures. Um, As they sent these young men off to face the chaos of conflict, the misery of life in the trenches, and the very real prospect of not coming back, they thought it was just obvious, it was just obvious that these men would need and even want to have the strength and the refuge that comes from knowing the God of the Bible. Uh, How things have changed in the last hundred years. Uh, One such soldier that headed off uh, with a standard issue Bible uh, was a young 25-year-old from Eastbourne and East Sussex called George Vinyl. Um, he was sent off to the Western Front. Uh, and on one occasion, he was, his bunker that he was staying in came under heavy enemy fire and he and his friend dived for cover. Uh, and they sort of held tight until the skirmish passed. And finally, the, the, the gunshots stopped Um, and he was talking to his friend, and he reached into his pocket to pull out his Bible, only to discover, his breast pocket, only to discover that a bullet was lodged in it. 
I don't know how uh, a Bible, just leather and paper, managed to stop a bullet and saved his life, but it did. And on the, in July 1915, he wrote to his mum and dad back home, and he described his experience and described how he had survived. And in the letter, he describes how the bullet had finally come to a halt in Isaiah 49. And as he opened up Isaiah 49, as the Bible kind of fell open at that point, these words popped out from that page. I will preserve thee. I will preserve thee. Isaiah 49, verse 8. And from that moment, from that moment, all his family later talked about this. From that moment, his life was transformed. Previously, he had been a mere churchgoer, but from that moment on, he became a passionate Christian. Uh, so much so that actually when the war finally ended, uh, he became a Bible translator for the Bible Society and traveled off throughout all the world. Um, all because he was absolutely persuaded, absolutely convinced that God can provide and ultimately protect anyone and everyone that puts their trust in him. Now, if you were in charge, if that was your choice, would you send every soldier off the conflict today with a Bible in their pocket? Not just as part of their body armor. I'm pretty sure Kevlar would do a better job than leather and pages uh, stopping bullets, but for their sanity, for their encouragement to maybe introduce them for the first time or remind them and reassure them that God is present, he's real and present with them, that he can provide for their needs, that he can ultimately protect them. Well, if you ask that question to the sons of Korah who wrote Psalm 46, their answer to that question would be a resounding yes, a resounding yes. That's what everyone needs to know, needs to know. Because the message of the psalm is essentially this. When confronted with chaos, hostility, and violence, our confidence need not be shaken because our God is a strong deliverer. That's the message of the psalm. If you forget everything else I say, just take a picture of that, and that's you for today. But that's the truth. Now, this little psalm that you can see from the heading, what's called the superscription, which is part of the original text, uh, we're told who wrote it, the sons of Korah. We're even told what tune you should sing it to. But frustratingly, what we're not told is we're not told what circumstances, what situation prompted uh, one of the sons of Korah to pen these words. But when we read through the song, uh, I think we get a bit of a steer. I think we get a bit of a, um, a bit of a guide. Clearly, this song was written in a moment of national crisis. Uh, the city of Jerusalem seems to be surrounded by enemies uh, who threaten death and destruction. Um, and we can guess, maybe, maybe it was written uh, when King Sennacherib, with his huge Assyrian army, surrounded the city of Jerusalem in 701 BC uh, and threatened uh, the capture of the city and the overthrow of the whole kingdom. But even when faced with death and disaster, this writer can say this, verse one, the Lord 
is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. The writer refuses, even in the midst of this very, these very dark days, he refuses to be paralyzed by fear. Instead, he has a quiet, unshakable confidence uh, in God, that God is in control, that God is able to preserve and protect his people. Now, it is, I suspect, very unlikely that Belfast is likely to be surrounded by a foreign army and you're going to be part of a siege in the year to come. I really doubt that, to be honest. But I think as we stand at the threshold of a brand new year, it is very likely, however, that many of us will face the trouble of potential job loss. It's very possible that some of us will face the turmoil that comes with an illness diagnosis. It's very possible that some of us may struggle with mayhem in our families. It's very possible that many of us will face the chaos that comes from grief. And so I think these words and the message of the psalm are incredibly useful and relevant for us as we step out into the unknown of 2023. How then can this writer be so confident? How can he be so confident? Well, the writer gives us three reasons to be confident, three reasons that we can take into this new year. Uh, For all the teenagers who have a handout, however, I have changed my mind on the points. I'm sorry, sorry, Sam. Uh, So you're going to have to just pay attention uh, carefully. These things have been subtly changed. Okay, first reason, first reason, don't be afraid. God will preserve you through calamity. That's the first reason. Don't be afraid. God will preserve you through calamity. Verse 2, therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Now, the ancient Jews were not a seafaring people. They weren't like the British, you know, ruled Britannia. Britannia rules the waves and all that. So they weren't a seagoing people. In fact, even at the height of their power and success under King Solomon, uh, when Solomon built a navy, he actually had to employ foreign people to man the boats. Because from a Jewish perspective, they viewed the sea as restless, uncontrollable, dangerous. That's the realm of the sea monsters. Let's just stay on dry land, everyone. And so in Jewish poetry and in Jewish literature, the sea is often used as a symbol for chaos and danger and evil. And what the writer is saying here in these first three verses is he is saying that the things that he thought were steady and solid and stable and secure and dependable have collapsed into chaos. So he picks the earth and the mountains. Can you think of anything more stable and secure than that? And yet they've collapsed into chaos. 
Now, some of you might know uh, there's what's called the mica scandal going on in Donegal at the minute. I'm a Donegal man, so maybe I'm more aware of it than you. But in Donegal, there are, over, there are between 6,000 and 8,000 houses and homes that were built during the economic boom through the, when the Celtic tiger was roaring. Uh, these houses were built, but they were built using defective concrete blocks that came from a particular quarry. And in each block, there is more than the maximum allowed um, amount of this material called Muscovite mica, or mica for short. And this material, what it does, is it just absorbs all the moisture that comes. And what happens is, over a very short period of time, the, the, the cement blocks, the concrete blocks, actually just crumble away. And so in many cases, as you can see from those pictures, in many cases, the homes become completely uninhabitable. In fact, many of them have to be demolished and rebuilt. But what makes matters even worse is that all the home insurance companies have refused to pay out. They've all said, and I quote, Household policies do not cover damage arising from faulty workmanship, defective design, or defective materials. And so imagine, imagine what it's like. You've, you've moved into your new house. It's a new build. None of this old kind of restoration business to do. It's a brand new build. Everything is decorated and fitted out to your desires. And then one day you see this massive crack appear in your wall. And then another one. And then another one. And then another one. You call in the expert to get a survey done in your house. And the results are devastating. Your home, your finances, your future all collapse into chaos. That's the way you're to feel when you read this psalm. Life been turned upside down. You feel all at sea. Now, I hope, I hope every one of the homes and houses represented here are all structurally sound uh, this morning. But I think many of us have had that same experience though, haven't we? The thing that we took for granted, the thing that we thought was stable and secure suddenly falls apart. Your job, which you thought was a sure thing and that you would work there until you retire, suddenly you've been informed you've been made redundant. You go to the doctor with something seemingly innocuous. You assume you're in general good health and you get the test results and it's devastating. The relationship which you thought was forever you discover is not. How are you to respond? How are you to respond when overwhelmed with anxiety about the future, overwhelmed by the calamity that's come upon you? Well, here's how to respond. We will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, how can the writer have such confidence? Well, here's how he can, first, first reason, he can have confidence because he knows God is with him. God is with him. Verse 1, 
The Lord is our refuge and strength and ever-present help and trouble. And we get the same idea repeated in verse 7, the refrain of verse 7 and verse 11. The Lord Almighty is with you. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, the writer is not saying, the writer is not saying God is nearby. I know some of you have had this experience, as I've had, where your internet goes down or your heating system stops working, uh, and you call the supplier and you arrange uh, an appointment window for the engineer to call out, let's say, for example, between 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. You decide to work from home that day, you wait, you wait, no sign of him. 12 o'clock, still no sign. You decide, I'll not be impatient, I'll wait till after lunch. You have your lunch, 2 o'clock, you call the company, and you're told by the operator on the other end, oh, it's okay, he's nearby, he's nearby, he'll be with you soon which you interpret as any time between now and 12 midnight. The writer here is not saying God is nearby. No, he's saying something much more wonderful than that. He is ever present. He is with you always and with you to help you. God is not aloof. He is not distant. He is not uncaring. He is always interested and intimately involved in our lives all the time. Isn't that a wonderful thought? The reason why this Old Testament believer can be sure that God is with him is because he looks up and he sees in the middle of the city, he sees the temple, the temple. He is confident that God is with him. Verse four, the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells, God is within her, she will not fall. Now in the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish believers understood that God dwelt in the temple. Now there's a sense in which, of course, God is everywhere, but God had promised them that he would be with them in that place in a special way to bless them. And so they could be confident as they looked at the temple, God will not let this city that bears his name be annihilated. He won't let that happen. But of course, we've got an even greater confidence, don't we, as New Testament believers? Because in the New Testament, we're told that the very moment, the very moment when someone becomes a Christian, when they admit their guilt, when they believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God who died for me, and they cry out for his mercy, the moment that happens, the Christian receives two gifts. First, the gift of forgiveness. The second, the gift of the Holy Spirit who comes to live in us. Paul can put it like this in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have received from God? God used to live in the Old Testament. He lived in a building. Now he lives in our bodies. He used to live in a house. Now he lives and dwells in our hearts by faith. God is with us individually, personally. I'm no Liverpool fan, to be honest, but their anthem should be the anthem of every Christian. You will never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. God is with us to help us. He will never leave you or forsake you. I came across this week the story of a lady called um, 
Sheila Cassidy, uh, she was a, a doctor uh, and went off to practice medicine out in Chile in the mid-70s when General Pinochet was in control and in power. Uh, she treated every patient that came into her surgery uh, and so she treated this man only to discover later that he was on the run from the Pinochet regime. Uh, it became known that he, she had assisted an enemy of the state. So she was arrested, she was beaten, and she was thrown in solitary confinement for weeks. And later on, she went on to say this, through it all, I was strengthened and sustained by an enormous sense of the presence of God. Now, I hope that very few of any in this room will ever have to face an ordeal like she had to face. But I know when I've talked to lots and lots of Christians over the years, some of whom are in this room right now who've had to face real uncertainty, real trouble, real sorrow. And at the moment when they felt the most helpless, the moment when they felt that hope was almost gone, they can testify to a deep and profound sense of the presence and love of God that strengthened and sustained them. You see, as we step out into the new year, there is no promise that we'll be sheltered from pain and trouble and sorrow. There's no promise of that. But what there is is a wonderful promise that in the midst of that, in the midst of the calamity and the chaos, God will be with you. And he will strengthen you and sustain you, help you and comfort you and use you for your good, the good of others and his glory even in the midst of the chaos and the calamity. Do not be afraid. God will preserve you through calamity. Second reason to be confident. Be glad. God will preserve you despite adversity. He will preserve you despite adversity. Verses uh, 1 to 3 talk about nature roaring and mountains falling. And then in verses four to seven, things, the, the scene changes a little bit and he talks about nations roaring and kingdoms falling. And I suspect actually he's talking about the same scenario, the same reality, Jerusalem under siege by their enemies. I suspect he, in verses one to three, is giving us a poetic description uh, of that threat. And now in verses four to seven, he's giving more of a factual description uh, of that threat. These people were under siege and they were facing the very real prospect uh, of death, destruction, and the annihilation of their people. The first thing a foreign army would do when attacking a walled city in the ancient world is they would cut off the water supply. They would block off the river you can survive, uh, the inhabitants of a, a city under siege can survive for months without any food, but only a matter of days without clean drinking water. Water, access to clean water, is essential for your survival. It's the resource without which you will die. But wonderfully, verse four, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God 
This is a poetic description of the, the Gihon Spring because Jerusalem had a natural water supply. In fact, uh, King Hezekiah built a, a, a tunnel from the spring right into the city um, to form what was called the King's Pool by the Fountain Gate. And that was to protect the water supply inside the city so that the people would be safe and would survive. And what the psalmist is saying is God has provided the resource, the life-giving resource we need to survive and to stand against the enemy. Now, the church is not a nation state. The church, the New Testament church, is made up of a multi-ethnic community that is scattered over every nation on this planet. We do not have a particular territory that we're defending or we're worrying about being invaded. Nevertheless, the New Testament tells us, however, that the church is involved in a war. It's involved in a war. That we too have an enemy, less visible, but no less real and no less dangerous. In fact, in the New Testament, Peter describes our enemy like this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Peter is saying we need to be aware. We're in a war. We have an enemy who wants to destroy us. Now at this point, there may be some in this room, some watching online who might be thinking, hold on a minute, Lee. You don't really expect, like this is the 21st century, you don't really expect me to believe in a devil, do you? You know, that's just a made-up character for Halloween and horror movies. I think C.S. Lewis has something very helpful to tell us at that point, if you're thinking like that. Um, in his little book, The Screwtape Letters, he writes this in the introduction. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive uh, and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and heal a materialist or a magician with the same delight. The New Testament tells us very clearly, very consistently, uh, that the devil is real. He is evil and is uh, a personal uh, spiritual being who is opposed to God and his purposes in the world, who is working hard to ensure that men and women, boys and girls, do not put their trust in the Lord Jesus, who's working hard to uh, ensure that Christians remain uh, immature and ineffective uh, in reaching other people with the good news of Jesus. And so every time we are tempted to give in to our evil desires, every time we are tempted to give up trusting in God, standing behind those temptations ultimately is our enemy, the devil. We too, just like the folks in Psalm 46, we too face a real and dangerous enemy. But wonderfully, we too have been given the life-giving resource we need to survive and to stand firm. Jesus in John 7, 
went up to the festival in Jerusalem and he stood up in front of a huge crowd and he said these words, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And John explains, by this he meant the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the life-giving resource we need if we're going to stand firm against the attack of the evil one. And God has wonderfully, graciously, and bountifully provided. Uh, I love the little story of uh, a little Indian girl um, who was playing in her bedroom one day um, and her father heard her shout, Daddy, come quickly. Her dad runs into her bedroom to see this little girl with her foot on the neck of a cobra that is frantically fighting to try to get loose. And she, she's not very strong, so she'll only be able to hold on for a few seconds. And what the father does very wisely is he puts his foot on top of her foot and kills the cobra. In many ways, that's what we're like. We face an enemy who wants to destroy us, to kill us. And when we're tempted to give in to him, we can cry out to God, come quickly, help me. And wonderfully he will. He will come and he will help you resist. He will help you not to give in. He will help you not to give up, but to stand firm and remain faithful. Be glad. God will preserve you despite adversity. So don't be afraid. God will preserve you through calamity. Uh, Be glad God will preserve you uh, despite adversity. And then lastly and very briefly, be confident God will preserve you for eternity. God will preserve you for eternity. The scene changes again in verse eight. And the songwriter strangely goes on to talk about Uh, how God will bring devastation in verse 8 and then peace in verse 9. And when you read through the first time, it's it's unclear. Is, Is he talking about something that God has done in the past or something that God will do in the future? And I think verse 10 helps us enormously. It shows us how we're to read verses 8 and 9. Just look at verse 10. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The psalmist is clearly talking about a day in the future when God will be seen to be God by all and honored by everyone. And for those of us who know our New Testaments, we know that he's talking about the return of the Lord Jesus to bring judgment He is saying that on that day, there will be terrible devastation. That's the first thing he's saying. There will be terrible devastation. On that day, everyone who mocked him uh, in the media. On that day, everyone who ridiculed him uh, in the university lecture hall. Everyone who laughed at him in the comedy club. Uh, everyone who ignored him in the government cabinet meeting, everyone who rejected him in their hearts. 
will be punished for their rebellion against him. Everyone who ignored him and rejected him to follow their own man-made religion will face devastating condemnation on that day. It will be a day of devastation. That means the beginning of verse 10, I think we need to read it in a different way to the way we normally or maybe have often read it. I think the beginning of verse 10 is often read as a loving, gentle invitation for you to come to God in contemplative prayer. Be still and know that I am God. But actually, when you look at it, the beginning of verse 10 is a stinging rebuke, part of a stinging rebuke on the final day. That's what it is. Be still. Enough. I've had enough. That's enough of you exalting yourself. That's enough of you playing at God. I am God, and I will be exalted in all the earth. That's how you're to read verse 10. And so what you need to see is the greatest fear that any man, woman, boy, or girl should ever have is not calamity today, is not the adversity of the evil one. The greatest fear that we all should have is that we would reach our final day and come before the living God and have him roar against us for our wrongdoing. That would be the most devastating thing that any of us could imagine. And on the final day, God will bring that devastation. But verse nine is also true. Verse nine is also true. It is also a day in which he will bring peace. He will bring devastation for all who rejected him in this life, but then he will bring peace to all who have trusted him in this life. He will bring a day when we will be welcomed by him and we will be invited to enter into his perfect world where there's no more war, where there's no more pain, no more sadness or sorrow or death ever again, where there'll be a world of perfect peace and eternal security. How is it possible that you could be in that group and not the first group? Well, I started off by telling you about George Vinyl. And he had a book that absorbed a bullet that saved his life. Well, a Christian is someone who has a savior who absorbs the judgment of God on our behalf so that we might not be condemned but might be welcomed into his eternal home. I think this is incredibly practical as well, practical point, because by remembering what lies in the future, it will help you live well in the here and now, won't it? I thought about this very briefly at Bill Richmond's funeral on Thursday. Imagine going out uh, on a terrible day terrible day and you're walking in the face of howling winds and driving rain. It's not hard to imagine that in Northern Ireland. It's grim, it's hard work, and it's utterly miserable. But imagine you also know you're nearly home, nearly home. You know what's waiting for you when home, when you're home? 
cup of tea. Comfy sofa. And because you know what's waiting for you just, just there, it'll keep you going in the moment. That should be the experience of every Christian. We know, we don't know how long calamity will last. We don't know long, how, much, how long we'll have to face adversity. But we know we have an eternity of great joy. Just there. Just around the corner. So keep going. Keep going. God is our strength and refuge and ever-present help in trouble. Don't be afraid. God will preserve you through calamity. Be glad. God will preserve you despite adversity. And be confident. God will preserve you for eternity. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful comfort of these words. Father, we thank you for your honesty. Uh, you do not give us false promises or small print. Father, we thank you for uh, the, the fact that your word reflects the reality in which we live, a world where there's calamity and we feel adversity. And yet there's wonderful encouragement here that through your son, our savior, we might be enabled to stand now and then we'll be invited to share in your eternal home forever. We thank you for these wonderful promises and we give you our thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.